0: Welcome to Tanakh Talks, the podcast which talks about Tanakh all day and all night if we could. My name is Jacob Beasley and we're recording from Alon Shfut in the hills overlooking the holy city of Jerusalem. Welcome to our podcast. Today we will be talking about chapter 32 in the book of Numbers, B'midbar Lamedbet, fascinating episode, the episode which begins with the tribes of Reuben and God turning to Moshe, turning to Moses and saying, we'd like to stay here in the Jordan." We're We don't want to come into the land of Israel, because after all, we have a lot of cattle. And it ends with Moses giving on condition the plains of the Jordan, the plains of Gilad, to not just two, but two and a half tribes. How did this come about? That is the subject of today's podcast. Enjoy. I want to start with a comic from 1992. Yes, I am old. It's a Dilbert comic in which two of his characters are discussing who caused the world's problem. The robot turns to the dog. Please don't ask. It is, after all, just a comic. I worry, is it my fault that people get heart attacks? No, reassures him the dog, that's from eating too many cows. Is the California drought my fault? No, says the dog again, that's from water subsidies to the cows. Global warning, cows again. The robot looks at the dog and says, cows are destroying the earth. And the dog looks at him and says, they're much better organized than you think. That really is the story of our chapter, chapter 32, in a nutshell. In fact, if you look at the very first verse, I'll read it in Hebrew so you get to appreciate it. It is the only verse in the entire Bible that begins and ends with the same word, mikne, cattle, or livestock. In English it translates that the livestock, many had the children of God in Ruven, and as they saw the land of Yazer and the land of Gilad was a good place for livestock, they turn to Moshe and they say, the question that everybody raises is, what sort of people are the children of God and the children of Ruven? Are they actually good people, but they just really and sincerely want to take care of their cattle? Or are they in some way trying to shirk their national responsibility to the rest of the people? Rashi takes the line of the Midrash that, of course, these people are motivated by money, and therefore we have to approach them with suspicion. The Nachmanides, Ramban, and say, no, Moshe understood. They weren't trying to shirk their responsibilities, but they simply wanted a proper place to live where they could be with all their cows. The actual question, of course, is, well, where did they get all these cows? Clearly, they did not bring them up from Egypt. One can imagine that for 40 years, to maintain blocks in the desert would have been a very difficult proposition, to say the least. I think the answer can be found in chapter 31, chapter right beforehand, which describes the war that the Jewish people fought against the people of Midyat. As part of the spoils, they take tremendous amounts of animals, including, if I have calculated correctly, over 670,000 sheep, 70,000 plus cows, and another 60,000 donkeys. In other words, tremendous amount of animals. They also took gold and silver and other riches, which are described in detail in chapter 31. But one can imagine, okay, if they're simply dividing up fairly, you get a cow and you get a cow and everybody gets a cow. But not everyone wants to take a cow and bring it home, especially if you're an urban dweller or your tribe takes an area that is not meant or suited for cattle raising. So one can imagine the trading going on. And already we are getting a hint here that these two tribes have somehow, from the beginning, said, we want to be the cattle raisers. And they've set themselves up for, well, if we want to raise cattle, we obviously have to take the best land for it. We want to stay here i.e., outside of the land of Israel. Let's look at their opening conversation with Moses very quickly, just something very fascinating. It begins, and I'm reading from verse 2. The children of God and Reuven, they come and they speak to Moses and to Elazar the Cohen and to all the heads of the community saying, they do this publicly, they're not doing it behind anybody's back. Atarot, dibon, yazer, sebam, beon. What we have is just a list of cities. There's no verbs in this sentence at all. And then they say, the land that the Lord has struck down before the children of Israel is a land for livestock. Oh, you know, your children, i.e. us, God and Reuben, we have livestock, we have cattle, we have miknit. It's almost as if, what are they expecting? They haven't asked anything, but they seem to be hoping, you're right, clearly it's divine providence that God has given you all this cattle and we are just happen to be sitting on this unsettled land or conquered land where which is good for cattle grazing. Verse 5, they said... If it pleases you, please give us this land. Do not take us across the Jordan River. Those people who have been in my class know that there's a phenomenon in Tanakh study called Vayomer Vayomer, that when the same people speak through an entire speech, in this case from verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, yet it says, and they said, and they said, or and he said, and he said, it means that there's a pause in between, but no response. So one can imagine them standing before Moshe Rabbeinu saying, These cities are really good for cattle, and we have cattle. And Moshe's almost like, well, do you want to ask it out loud or not? I'm going to make them say it. Please give us this land. We don't want to grow across the Yardin. So they aren't asking directly in their first opportunity, and at first glance it appears they don't want to be part of the people. We don't want to go over into the land of Israel. Moshe explodes. Shall your brothers go to war and you will stay here? Why do you discourage? Not only by doing that, you discourage the children of Israel from crossing. This is what your fathers did. When I sent them from Kadesh, he recalls the sins of the spies way back in chapter 13 and 14 in Numbers. They went up to the Valley they discouraged the children of Israel from crossing into the land, that anger the lair of the Lord. None of the men over the age of 20 will come to see the land, Not the, and I promise to give time for Misuk and Yakov, except for these two people the, for 40 years, and you're going to cause this to happen again. And we can imagine him saying, if I'm going to have to stay here until I'm 160 years old, what do you want from us? If you turn from among you, we will destroy the entire people. It's a very harsh, harsh speech. He accuses them of repeating the sins of their forefathers. Rabbi Natty Helfcott has pointed out that this, in fact, is a reversal of the spies' story. He points out that a lot of the things that happened in the 40th year, the second attempt to go in, reverse the previous generation's mistakes. Before, it was 10 tribes. Who voted not to go into the land of Israel, their spies, their representatives chose don't go, and only two tribes wanted to go. Now we've reversed the numbers. Then in fact, two tribes are trying to stay out, but the other ten tribes cannot wait to go in. The question is, did Moshe Rabbeinu act correctly? Did he properly read the intentions of the children of God and children of Ruven? Well, they approach him again and they say, Listen, we will build here folds for our sheep, you know, we'll build the fences and the cattles for our sheep. We'll build cities for our children, but we, of course, will go armed and we will fight. And only when we finish fighting will we come back and take possession of this land. But we want to stay on this land. And Moshe says, well, if you promise to fight and you help to join the Jewish people in their battles to conquer the land of Israel, afterwards you can return and be free of your obligation. Then he says, build for yourselves cities for your children and fences and pens and enclosures for your sheep and your cattle and do everything that you say that you will do. Rashi immediately points out the change in the wording. The children of God and children of Uven look, and see. the children of God and the children of Reuben say, "We will build fences for our cattle, and then we will put our cities for our children." Moshe reverses it: first build cities for your children, and only then can you build fences and pens for your cattle. And the children of God and the children of Ben seem to have come to an agreement. So even though we've got to hear Moshe Rabbeinu's rant, as it were, his explosion, and as Rashi points out, by this reverse, we see that there's a, it's not just a question of technicalities, it's a question of priorities. What is the first thing that comes to mind? What's the first thing you have to do? Do you take care of your finances or do you take care of your family? They say, we are going to take care of our business. We'll take care of our flocks. And Moshe says, no, family first. First you set up your family, and then you take care of your finances, because that's what's more important. But having come to this agreement, did that agreement hold? Whether or not I hold, like Rashi and the Midrash, that they were motivated by money, and their concern for their finances is why they chose to stay in the first place, or according to the, Ramban, the and the barbanel who say, no, this is actually not fault of the children of God and children of The it's actually the reality, is that Moshe is no longer understanding the people. The people, when they complained about the water in chapter 20, they said, you haven't brought us to a land of pomegranates and figs and dates, alluding to the fact that they want to be in the land of Israel. They don't want to be in the desert anymore. They want to go. But Moshe reacts as if it was the previous generation who complained you didn't take us to lands of water bones and garlic and fish, i.e., why did you take us out of Egypt? Because he misunderstands the people, he isn't able to properly address their needs anymore. Whether or not that is true, the question is what is the status of B'nai Gad and B'nai Ruven in this chapter? Can we say that he also misunderstands them? When we come back, we will look at the final section of the chapter and try to answer that question. In the chapter's final section, and I'm looking at verse 28 in chapter 32, Moshe commands Eleazar, and he commands Joshua, and these are the heads, and all the heads of the tribes, and he presents the agreement before them. And he tells them, if the children of God and Reuben go over to the Arden with you, and they're on the front line, and the land is conquered, then you should give them the land of their Eretz i.e. the land on the other side of the Jordan, as an inheritance. But if they do not cross over with you armed for battle, then they shall receive a possession with you. And then come the children of God and the children of Ben and say, Oh, we shall do what Hashem has told your servant. That's of course we will do. We will go over in an armed force before Hashem, before the Lord, to the land of Canaan. And we shall have the possession of our inheritance on this side of the Jordan. If you've listened carefully to what they've said, they've made a small change in the agreement. Moshe said, First everybody goes over. The battle on the western side, the land of Israel has to be won first, and only then can the children of God and Ruven go back to the eastern side and conquer the Jordan and settle it. The children of God and the children of Ruven say, No, we will come over, but simultaneously we will our children and our families will stay on this side of the Jordan. Moshe is quiet. He apparently understands he can get no more in negotiations, and he's willing to settle for that deal. But the fact that they've made this subtle change, I think, is indicative of how we should read B'nai Me Meruven. We should resist the temptation to say that Moshe Rabenu simply misunderstood what they were doing. All the way through, they've been very careful not to speak to him directly. They are very polite, very respectful. They understand the significance of what they're asking. They are not trying to cause a mass rebellion against Moshe, yet they will stay on this land, and even this last minute change, I think, is significant. And so it concludes that Moshe gave the descendants of God and descendants of Ruven, and suddenly the half tribe of Menashev, Ben Yosef. It's interesting that these three tribes are together just as a side point. These are the three rejected firstborns that are among Ben Israel. Ruven is the firstborn of Leah, Leah being the rejected wife. And Reuben, of course, is the rejected firstborn from the 12 tribes. God is the rejected firstborn of the maidservant's servant's children. And Manasseh is the brother of Ephraim, Yosef's son, the firstborn again, who also is rejected, as we read in chapter 48, back in Breshit, the book of Genesis. Yet why is the tribe of Manasseh here? Was this Moshe's initiative to give them the land, perhaps to create a bridge between the east and west side of the Jordan? It's possible after all menashe does not fight his younger brother his acquiescence to the decision is the first time that brothers do not fight in all of the book of genesis it's a very significant and powerful moment so maybe by splitting menashe on both sides of jordan moshe is trying to create a bridge that will keep the people united as we know that historically in the book of judges there will be an almost civil war that breaks out between the two sides of the people Almost civil war first begins at near the end of the book of Joshua. Then there is a mini-civil war led by Yiftach in chapter 12 in Judges. But I want to suggest one final possibility, and we'll conclude with this thought. The children of Manasseh go to Gilad, and they conquer it. They drive out the Eborim. This is in verse 40. And Moshe gave Gilad to Machir, the son of Manasseh. Here, the son of Manasseh goes, and he conquers the hamlets, and they call the area Chavot What we see here is that Manasseh is going to actively fight for these areas. And I want to finish with the thought of Rabbi Nadi Health caught on The whole episode is a reversal of the spy story. If 40 years beforehand, 10 out of 12 of the representatives of the people choose not to enter the land, now we have the reverse case that only two tribes are suddenly choosing not to enter the land and 10 are ready to go to fight. They're looking forward to war. If the Reuven and God narratives is actually an inverted story of the Muraglim, the spy story, then this smaller ending here where Manasseh goes out and actively fights is actually an inverted Ma'apilim story, the story at the end of chapter 14, when after the spies bring the disastrous decree down on the Jewish people, a small group of people say, well, we choose to fight, and Moshe says, don't go and fight, you are not going with the God's bracha, you're not going with God's blessing, and they go and they eventually, and they get defeated. Whether this happened once, or as Rav suggests, possibly happened again and again and again, but we see that there were attempts to enter the land of Israel which are now being rebuffed. Hashem had warned them, God had told them, do not go into battle. He is not with them anymore. In our chapter, we have the exact opposite scenario. The children of Manasseh immediately go to battle against Yer-Mari, and They rout them and they kick them out of the land. And Moshe gives his stamp of approval by giving them the territory without making it in any way dependent even on capturing the rest of the land of Israel. According to Rabbi Helfkot, Rashi notes that there's a tradition that Tzalofchot was one of the Mapilim, he was one of the people who tried to conquer the land prematurely, without God's approval, and yet it's now his daughters who come and turn to God and say, "We want part of the land." Whereas previously, a member of Menashe had tried to conquer the land without God's permission. Now we have the do- the children of Menashe going and fighting for land, and thereby concluding and re- the reversal of the sid of their ancestors who attempted to go against God's wish. With that thought in mind, we've got a large picture. We've discussed a lot of issues here today. We've discussed the Vayomer Vayomer concept, which means when a person repeats a speech twice, we're looking for that pause. And that, I think, is very revealing as to how we can understand the character of the children of God and show of We've seen the reversal of the wording that Moshe quickly points out, demonstrates that the, where the values of the children of Menashe, children of Reuben, really lie, and in fact their clever switch at the end in the final negotiations before the elders, in which they make one final change to the contract right before the contract is agreed upon, it's a very damning picture of the two tribes, and I think that's what the Torah is trying to convey. It's not trying to convey that Moshe is somehow senile and unable to understand them, I think the exact opposite, but that the Moshe understood them very, very well, what they wanted to accomplish, what they were trying to do. I want to wish everybody a wonderful, wonderful Shabbat. And thank you for listening to the Tanakh Talks podcast. Next week, we're going to have special treats. We'll be interviewing Rabbi Alex Israel on his new book on Melachim. We'll be doing the Book of Psalms. Some of the Tehillim we'll be looking at to help our tefillot, our prayers. We'll also be looking at one or two more chapters in Joshua and possibly some more episodes in the Book of Kings. Until then, thank you for listening to the Tanakh Talks podcast.